This is FPNA Friday. It's FPNA Friday. Second episode. I'm looking forward to it. Been thinking about it all week. Um, this is the uh, the the catalyst to kick off my great weekend, man. Well, I, I can't wait to get into the weekend. Uh, we're going to be doing some really fun stuff out here in wonderful California. I'm going to take the uh, take the kids swimming uh, where they're going to fail mostly. And, uh, and that's the, the talk of today, really. We're going to talk about two key things. We're going to talk about uh, failure, how we, uh, how we learn from it, and uh, we're going to talk about storytelling. So, Chris, uh, let's talk about failure for a bit. What's your uh, yeah? What's your perspective on failure? Ah, Rowan, that's a you know for me, um, failure has always been something since I remember being younger that has always been like a motivation for me, right? Like I remember uh, you know being in school and my mom. I talk to my mom about this all the time, and I'm. And this may sound counterintuitive, but for me, like I would want to get to the point of failing in school because it would challenge me to bring my grades back up. So, you know, it'd be progress report time. The first eight weeks I have like D's and F's and my mom will be like, Chris, you better get your grades up. Like, you know, you got only like, you know, eight more weeks or 16 more weeks left in the semester. But I would always like do that because I wanted the challenge. Like I wanted the opportunity to fail. So for me, I think, you know, as a professional, that's always been like a North Star of mine, like seeking the opportunity to fail. And a lot of people is like, Chris, how do you do that? Well, for me, it's about the challenge, right? Because the philosophy I have in life is real simple. And I learned this in boxing. I learned this growing up in the inner city, in the hood. I learned all this stuff about it. And to me, there's only two options in life. You either win or you learn. You only lose if you didn't learn. So through failure, that's your biggest opportunity to learn. It's the biggest. And throughout my career, it has always been something that I've always seeked and always challenged other professionals and people just to put themselves in a position to fail. So for me, it's a it's a very strong uh, and drive of mine in my personal, professional, and all the other hats that I wear in my life. Yeah, I have a bit of a contrarian view. I, I know people have that quote, right? You know, I either win or I learn. I never fail. Um, and I, I think people take that to just a little extreme sometimes where they they don't they forget about what they learned and why they learned like you know like you actually you did fail right if you don't take that moment to step back and say well i was seeking to achieve something or do something and i didn't do it and then sit there and go okay well now what can i learn from it i think a lot of people bury the failure um by saying oh i learned from it well what did you learn and they don't actually take the time to be really critical of why they failed and how they failed and what that failure was about. And I just lost my Wi-Fi there for a little bit. I think I'm back. Oh, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, you uh, ended off where you said like people, uh, they seek failure, but they don't take it like critically. They don't really like get it and really like take that application of them learning and keep it consistent. That's yeah. Where you left off. Yeah. And, and, and so I think, you know, if you're going to, to take that moment to, to say, Oh, I just learnt that's, that's great, but be really critical of why you failed and then make sure that you never make that same mistake again. And I, I think people just kind of often use that quote as a way of just kind of burying their failure, which is um, not the way that you actually learn. For sure, for sure, I agree a hundred. So, Chris, do you have any um, do you have any stories uh, about how you failed? Do I have stories? Come on, Rowan, man! Like, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I think uh, if, <laughs> do I have stories? Where do we start? Right? Where Where do we get on this journey to all the clubhouse listeners and everybody? Where do we start on the journey? I think for me, having time to think about this, I really distilled it down to like personal failures, professional failures. And just like life learning, right? So if it's okay, I'll probably start with the personal side because for me, we're going to get to the professional and all that stuff. But I really want the audience and I really want people to, to you know, I want to be honest and transparent and authentic. Um, I would say one of the biggest per personal uh, learnings, right? And I don't consider it a failure, but 
um, you know, in, in the spirit of being honest and transparent, a lot of people don't know this about me. Um, I have a learning disability. Um, and people may be like, people may be like, well, that's crazy. But to me, um, when I was in third grade, right, uh, I had dyslexia. And I'll never forget being in school and it came story time where you had to read, where you go across the, the classroom and it's like, okay, you read this paragraph and you read this sentence. And mm -hmm. I got to read and I'll never forget, like, why are these kids laughing at me? Like, cause I started at the end of the sentence. I went back. I couldn't retain what I was, what I was reading. And, uh, you know, I remember like being in class and being laughed at and like, why is this happening to me? And I, I felt like a complete failure. Like, I'm like, I'm not going to be good. And I remember my mom sitting down, uh, and I'll never forget her name, Miss White. Miss White, uh, if, and I haven't reached out to her, she was monumental in changing my life. Because my mom, she came to my mom and said, hey, here's what your son is dealing with. She spent an entire summer with me, Rowan, helping me uh, with, with my learning disability around dyslexia, right? But where I spurred into that is the greatest thing right now, like, one way for me to really help with my dyslexia was learning multiplication tables. So one of the exercises Miss White would give me is she would give me sheets of multiplication tables because in multiplication, you have to read it left to right. Like if you read 12 times 11, you can't read it 21 times 11. You have to read it the right way. So that really helped me. But it also helped me love my passion of like quantitative and like quickly looking at numbers. And she was able to now put this multiplication stuff also into reading. So now I got into like taking multiplication and all these different things that she was teaching me on that to put it into word problems. So then I started understanding how numbers connected to stories and reading. And that was monumental for me. That was, that was life changing, right? And for me, that was a, a opportunity that I look back on that if that, if that failure didn't happen, if that, you know, me feeling bad about myself and, and, and really, you know, I have a twin sister, right? And for the rest of my life, everybody was like, Chris, why are you not in the same grade as your twin sister? And I just said, well, you know, uh, at, at, you know, in certain points in my life, I never wanted to share that with people because, you know, and then I got to say, I'm going to own this. That's part of who I am. That's, that, that was part of a chapter that was a mo one of the most important chapters of my entire life. And it's like the one thing that any listener or, or people would never think about, like, dang, Chris, Chris has a learning disability. But it spurred my love of account. Um, that's what I think of failure, right? That that has been long lasting that uh, and, and a lot of times failure is not just individual. Failure is like you you have people in that journey with you. Nobody fails alone, right? I think you all have people in your life that are willing to be there for you. And that's that that's that learning aspect that really hits the nail on the head, right? Uh, but for me, from a personal aspect, that is a uh, a failure that I had in my life that really transformed my life. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing, Chris, that uh, that's a hugely defining moment, I imagine, in, in your personal life and an and ongoing uh, moment, right? When you when I think about that, having, um, I, I can't imagine having a, a twin that's like a year ahead of you in school, that would always be a, an ongoing challenge, an ongoing part of the conversation, and would really, you know, could either do two things and, and, you know, what you've said there is, you know, it's, it spurred you on to own it, to talk about it, to challenge yourself to be better in other areas. And that, that has what has created your, your love of numbers and quantitative analysis, which is, uh, you know, now your greatest strength. One of them. Right, right. So yeah, we got right. a lot of people here in the in the crowd today. Um, I, I want to give you all the the opportunity. Just feel free. We're in Clubhouse here. This is uh, meant to be a participate participatory uh, event. So feel free to raise your hand. We'll bring you up here on stage, and we can uh, share some of our failures together. So uh, if anyone wants to jump on stage and and talk about any failures that you've had, uh, please feel free to raise your hand. We'll uh, we'll moderate and, and and bring you all up. Uh, I'm going to bring uh, Vicky up to uh, to help us um, manage some of those other moderators as well. 
Um, thanks, Vicky. And just as an FYI, we're, we're recording this call for FPNA Fridays so that um, many of you uh, who can't be on uh, every Friday, I know people have uh, work to do and they've got personal lives to live. So we're also recording this. So this will be available on, on Spotify uh, under the Being Planful podcast. So um, thanks to those that are listening there. So Chris, let's let's jump across to some professional failures. I'm going to share some of mine a bit later. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to hold them, but uh, I want to I want to talk keep keep going with you. Aside from the the, the obvious ones, we've all um, entered the wrong value in a spreadsheet and made a dumb decision off uh, off that kind of information, Definitely. right? But but what uh Definitely. when <laughs> we've we've all done it too many times to count, right? Um, I what? did. I did it this morning, and I was like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, retract email, quick, quick, quick. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thankfully, now with with uh, with Google Sheets and and history and stuff, you can quickly change it and uh, and tell people without before they actually get the email, which is always nice. Um, but talk about some of your professional failures. Like, where where have you failed? Um, that's you know been a, a real challenge to overcome. Yeah. Um, and for me, I, you know, I won't, I won't share those Excel and those forecasting errors. Listen, we live and breathe by those things. And I have an arsenal of all those mistakes. For me, I want to focus on the people failures because I think uh, people and as leaders, as, 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 as a business partner, people are so important in, in our professional development. So the biggest failure that I've had in the people side of it is um, you know, I'll never, it's two of them. The first one is when I first got into leadership, right? So that jump from being like the rock star individual contributor that's knocking it out the park with your, you know, your planful dashboards and your scenario planning and all this other stuff, making that leap to being like a manager of people and leading people, I had a huge failure in that, right? And I'll never forget this in my career. I remember going into being a leader and I tried to, instill everything that I everything that I was doing right as an individual contributor to my team right I tried to you know I didn't adapt my communication I was like hey why aren't you not getting this like you know this is and and I understood that everybody understands comprehends and have different motivations right and I had to adapt my style and the biggest failure that I had was understanding that when you get into leadership and start managing people your wins are few and far between. Like you don't get those home run victories that you get as an individual contributor, right? Like you get on this project, you uh, you know, you knock out this dashboard that helps you know unite the whole business and break down data silos, and you ride that high, right? You feel so great about getting this win. But as a leader, I had to understand that my wins are going to come through my people, right? Their success their progress, their accomplishment, investing into them, right? And that was a point in my career where I was so used to, you know, feedback. Like, I'm a, I was a feedback fanatic. Like, I wanted, don't tell me what I did well. Tell me everything I'm doing wrong, right? And for me, that was a big monumental step for me that I, I failed it. I failed at communication, right? I failed at uh, really motivating my team, which some people are like, Chris, you're like the energizer bunny motivator. How did you feel at motivating people? I did, right? Because I was so, I was like, how come these people can't operate and do the things that I did, right? I had to adapt, right? Also, the thing I failed in is like, fail the motivations of people, right? Not everybody has that, that sixth, that seventh gear, right? They don't, not everybody has, and that's okay, you need people on your team, right? And one thing I realized is, like, I don't need a team of Michael Jordans all on my team, right? You look at the greatest basketball team of all time. I'm not talking about Golden State. I'm a, you know, I'm a millennial, and I'm every Sunday with Michael Jordan when the 72 and 10 team, that was the greatest team because each one of them knew their role and they executed, right? So, like, I knew as a leader that Michael Jordan made everybody around him better, but he didn't make them better to his level. He made them max out to what their potential was. So for me, jumping that leap in individual contributor leadership and managing people, it was and I had to self-reflect, right? 
And that was another, because sometimes, look, look, leadership isn't for everybody. Everybody wants to be the, it's not made for everybody. And that's okay, right? But for me, those were the key learnings that I had from failing in making that lift from individual contributor to managing people. And those are learnings that I've taken, have taken to every position I have throughout my career. Yeah, a lot of... Um... A lot of the the successes that we have as individual contributors actually make us really terrible leaders. Um, it, yep. it, you know, you talked about just the constant seeking of feedback. That's great as an individual contributor, but when you do that as a leader, you actually, and if you do that to to the people that you're working with and you're meant to be leading, you you start to create this perception that you have no idea what you're doing and you lose trust and 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 people are like oh my god does he even know what he's doing why does he keep asking me for feedback um and and that then that's one example of of where our individual contributor success is really bad for leadership the other aspect is what you said which was when we're succeeding as as individual contributors, it's all down to us. Like, yeah, I, I did that thing. I, I, I pulled that report together. I pulled that late night. And when you start doing that as a leader, you're actually taking away from other people's success. You're, you know, if, you, if you've ever read the book Multipliers, you're becoming a diminisher of your team. And the winning, as you said, is few and far between. And you have to learn to win through others. And that's a skill. Uh, that's so difficult to learn. Um, and unfortunately, I think every new leader goes through it. No one, no one takes you, no one takes you through leadership training. Uh, and, and that's, you know, again, what we decided to talk about these two topics today for storytelling and, uh, and, and failure is because no one taught us this at school. Like no one, no one gave us this training. No one gave us this coaching. And our existing leaders are too busy trying to lead us than coaching us as well. And, and that's not their fault. It's just right. the way that the structure works. So, you know, we're, we're going to keep these these fun topics going over on FPNA Fridays. The, you know, the, the FPNA school that they didn't teach you at school. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so some of my biggest failures have been in leadership too. Um, I, I remember one instance... Uh, you know, a year or two ago was just simply, I was busy doing other parts of leadership. And, and one of the things that, um, you know, a leadership coach that I have said, delegate, don't abdicate. And, and unfortunately, I, I abdicated. I, uh, uh. I, I was working with a, with a colleague and, and he reported to me and we were going through a big, big initiative and I just assumed that they had it and I didn't set him up for success. And, uh, and it went like his poor meeting went horribly with, with other executives. And, uh, and to this day, I I get really upset by that because, you know, I, I, I failed that person and that's the worst type of failure, not failing myself. Like I can, I can handle failing myself. I'm, I'm a big boy. I've got hit a lot of times. I got knocked down a lot of times. I'll keep getting back up. But when you when you fail for someone else, there's a huge accountability that you you carry, um, and a burden that you carry, and and so I know we've all done it, and and we all want to learn from it. What what advice do you have for people where they may not have um, done what I did yet? Um, how do you set yourself up for success when you're leading teams to make sure that you never fail those teams. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely in the situation we're going through right now, right. With remote and, and going through the pandemic. Right. I think it's really three core values, right. To me, you have to be honest with your team. Right. I think uh, honesty in a time right now as accounting finance, FPNA professionals is the most important thing that we can do. Right. Within regards, right. You can't, Obviously, we as leaders in finance and accounting, we're usually like the people that know a lot of things coming down the horizon. So we have to be a little bit conscious of that. But at the same time, you want to be as honest and authentic as possible, right? The second thing is to set your team up for success is you want to understand what their passion thesis statement is, right? So 
I think every professional has a passion thesis statement. That passion thesis statement is what gets them passionate about what they do, right? What lights their fire, right? For my team, um, I have two of the most, uh, you know, and no discredit, I will put my accounting finance FPNA team against any team in the world. We go, let's get it. Tool for tool, technology for technology, skill for skill, let's go. But the reason why is you got to understand what motivates that person. Because what motivates me is going to be different than what motivates Sharice, uh, who's on my team, who's an all-star, right, who was nominated for 2020 Indiana's uh, best and brightest in accounting, holding it down. Although she didn't win, uh, she's still a superstar, right? But her thesis statement, I know it like the back of my hand. Same thing with uh, our staff accountant, Lauren, who's absolutely amazing, right? But you got to understand those pieces, right? And you, you, you hit upon a word that is the worst thing you can do as a leader. All leaders, everybody in Clubhouse, listen to this word. And never if you say it, you're doing it wrong. Never assume or make assumptions. Don't do that. Because the moment you make an assumption, you made an ass out of you and me. You made an ass out of yourself, right? You made an ass. You just did it. That's what the word is. It's asses out of you and me when you make assumptions, right? But you don't want to do that. The third thing is, I think for teams, is always connecting them to the bigger picture. And that's what leaders need to do. Leaders need to also be in the trenches and, and doing the work with them alongside in the journey. But also a major point that you have to connect your people to is, guys, here's the work that we're doing, but here's where we're going. And here's, why, here's how we're going to get there together. Here's some pitfalls we may have, but here's how we're going to get there together. And the last point that I share, and then this is uh, really near and dear to my heart, is you have to be a leader that is empathetic to not just your team, but the situations around you, right? If there's one thing in leadership that's a, that's a value changer is empathy and emotional intelligence, right? I think those are the most undervalued leadership skills of all time, right? Having high e, uh, IQ, having high EQ, and, under, and, and having a compassionate, empathetic view when you're listening to your teams and motivating them and directing them, and even also when you're giving the bad talks too, right? Like, you got to be that kind of leader. And to me, I think those four pillars are monumental, right? But it takes time to develop, right? Like, I, I didn't... I didn't know uh, empathetic uh, empathy and, and I didn't develop high IQ until later on in my life. Oh, please believe my emotions got the best of me so many times in my life, personally, professionally. I'm, I'm a, you know, my, my zodiac signs are cancer. So I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I mean, people can probably hear my emotions through me talking in the video that they're seeing. So I've had to understand that I need to master those emotions, right? I need to be honest. I need to be empathetic. I need to have high EQ, right? I need to understand my people and what motivates them and what they're passionate about. And I need to connect them to the bigger picture. And I think those are, uh, you know, if there was a quick step and, 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 you know, framework to go back through, learn to develop those and find opportunities to fail in those areas because that's how you learn. If you want to be a better, have better emotional intelligence, you got to have some failures around and be like, okay, I messed up in this, right? If you want to know somebody's passions, you got to fail at some things, right? Like, okay, I understand that Sharice doesn't like the forecasting aspect of it, so that's not something I'm going to have her do. She doesn't get motivated about that. But when we start talking about the strategic business and looking at these sales KPIs, that's what gets her motivated. So in those areas, if you want a quick start guide, focus on those areas and find ways to fail in those four areas. That would be my recommendation uh, to all the listeners. Yeah, and, and, and what you just started touching on there was kind of then navigating through the, the, the why and the how and, and using storytelling to do that. And I know that's the second topic that we wanted to cover on, on today's FPNA Fridays here on Clubhouse. But before we, uh, before we jump across to starting to speak about storytelling, um, again, another thing that they forgot to teach us in business school was how to be a really good storyteller. Yep how to motivate teams through story, um, how, to, how to ultimately use storytelling as a weapon uh, in business. Uh, so we're going to get to that topic. 
Before we do, I want to ask the audience, um, again, just feel free to raise your hand uh, if you want to participate in this conversation. We'll bring you up here on stage. But I wanted to ask the audience if they had any uh, failures that they wanted to share and, and how they uh, potentially learnt from those failures or ask myself or Chris or, or others um, about some of our experiences failing. So just feel free. Um, if you're new to Clubhouse, there's a little hand raise icon there in, in the bottom right. Um, and, uh, and we'd love to hear some of your questions or, or stories. And I think we've got a quiet room today, Chris, which is really unfortunate guys. It's Friday morning. I know the weekend's coming. Uh, it's, it's, it's still Friday. You're still, you know, getting paid to talk. Uh, certainly Chris and I are anyway. Um, all right. So let's transition to storytelling then. Um, one of the things that, you know, I, I often see um, what you just described as is, is leaders failing to connect the dots for people, right? Uh, we talked a little bit about this last week on FPNA Fridays was um, that inability for a leader to contextualize what's important about something to then get back to what you said, which was the motivations of individuals, right? How do I right. connect as a leader? How do I connect the what the business needs why the business needs it back to the motivation of the people who need to do the work or to execute on the how and the why um i have seen the the big challenge for organizations is just that that ultimate inability to be transparent about the goal and and why the goal has shifted or changed or um being adjusted and people never know that they've changed the course they've changed the the the, the map uh the map has changed right you've, you've gone from grand theft auto 5 to grand theft auto 6 no wonder people are confused right like you're in a completely different city here um yeah. and, and so how, how chris have you been able to work through that knowing that nobody taught you this in business school yeah yeah, so for me, that's a great question, right? And I think a lot of it comes down to one key, one key, one key question you have to know from people, right? Listen, everybody's motivated as an organization. They want to know this answer for them, and that's how you connect to them. What's in it for me? Listen, everybody's kind of, you know, like I would never forget like uh, some of the town hall meetings when we were all in the office, and I miss these times, man. I miss these times and these abilities to connect with our Marxist employees, but we have weekly town halls and all the leaders got up and talked. And our president of our America's operations, Sean Brady, someone I look up to, tremendous leader. He says, Chris, you do a great job. Like people know your passion, but you have to like, you have to connect with people about what's in it for them, right? What's in it for a solutions architect to listen to you or why you're talking about, you know, bookings, revenue, dollar retention rate, right? So to me, you have to understand the audience that you're talking to and what's in it for them. Like what, mo again, gets back down to motivation. And a lot of that is building partnerships and understanding, right? Like I know a solutions architect or a solutions consultant, right? They want to know what our pipeline looks like because a lot of their compensation may be tied to new deals or new opportunities. And if I'm talking to them about, hey, our pipeline looks strong, in new business, we're looking to do about, you know, I'm making this up, right? 20 extra deals on top of our budget at our conversion rate of 50%. We're looking at 10 of these deals to be closed at this average MRR size, right? Like, like that's where you see people start to light up. They're like, oh, we got that coming down the line. That means that, you know, I could be potentially being on like larger enterprise level deals. I could have a higher commission check, right? So, it's finding ways in your storytelling to make sure you connect to the audience that you're talking to. And listen, I'm not, no leader is expected to connect to every single audience person there. That's unreasonable. You're not going to be able to do that, right? You're, you're going to, you can't speak to everybody in your organization. If you're in like a, you know, 100,000 employee organization, you can't connect with everybody, right? But it's finding that method to know that you're connecting to many people what's in it for them and why is it important for them to know i think it's critical in the skill set of making sure you have this art of storytelling right and to me the second piece of 
making storytelling is you got to make it with emotion, right? Nobody wants to sit and listen to, hey, um, we have a budget of 50 and we did 40 and we have. I'm not asking people to have the same charisma and everything like that, but you got to have people. In, if, you, if you're not excited about what you're talking about, how do you expect somebody else to be excited about what you're talking about? Like, if you're not passionate about, F, you know, like FDNA and the things we're talking about, <laughs> then, like, how do you expect somebody else to do that? So to me, I think those are uh, two fundamental blocks that really help me bridge the gap in storytelling to the business. And, and storytelling, to your point, is not just about uh, the words or the story, right? It, it's about the tone, the way that you tell the story, the, um, the attitude towards the story. Um, the, the simple power of story, and, and if you break down any story into three words, um, which you can do, you can break down any story that exists in the world today in, into three words, conflict creates change and i've unabashedly stole that from a book called storynomics um but every story starts with some level of conflict either personal conflict inner conflict uh you know luke skywalker in a conflict right um there's also an an outer conflict going on in in the world in that in that particular world um and it, it spurs a change and so when you think about applying that to business, what is the conflict that uh, you're trying to overcome? You talked before about, um, you know, the conflict of, of growth needing to create change and we're trying to grow faster and therefore there's more change that's required to create more growth. Uh, growth creates change, change creates growth, growth creates change. It's a beautiful never-ending cycle, especially in, in high-tech SaaS, right? Um <laughs> if you don't like change, don't come to the SaaS industry. Um, <laughs> um, and, and so that conflict, whether it be competitor conflict, whether it be uh, some sort of team conflict, that is ultimately what's, what's going to um, help people contextualize what's going on to allow you to tell the story of what we need to change and why we need to change it. And so... For, for, the, for the listeners, for the leaders out there, make sure that you understand that that story can be completely embedded in, in those three simple words. And that's going to help motivate people because everyone loves overcoming conflict too. Um, whatever that conflict is, you talked about before, a, a conflict with, you, with your own self in dyslexia, right? And you overcame that. Right. Um, you know, which is a really powerful story, but it created a change in you that has now gone on to become a strength in you, right? You, you've overcome that. You've turned that into a strength. And, and then the other aspect about storytelling that I think is, is really fundamental is helping people um, taking, a, taking away more things. Um, uh, Cormac McCarthy, uh, the, the famous author, I don't know if anyone's read any of his books, but um, they're not terribly um, fun. Um, but what he what he does is he strips back everything in the world. So, so one of the more famous books that he that he wrote was called The Road. Uh, and if anyone's seen gotcha. the movie with Vito Morgerson, like it's just a boy and a man walking in a desolate planet after something has happened. But he takes everything away from from the reader, from from the the viewer in the movie everything is gone away. Like there's no distractions so that you can focus on that story. And, and again, the, the leaders should think about that. Like what's not important to tell people because the more right. that you fill the story with fluff, <laughs> the, uh, the, the worse it's going to be for people because they're not sure what is the meaning of that story. What's the most important narrative that they need to follow. Um, Many people think Toy Story is about an adventure between uh, two friends, Buzz and Woody. It's actually the conflict of Buzz and Woody. Uh, right. You know, they, they hated each other. Uh, and I, it's one of my, my favorite movies, by the way. So that's why I talk about Toy Story a lot. Um, so, Chris, 
When when you've thought about storytelling as a meaningful way of contributing to your teams, have you have you failed at storytelling? Most definitely. <laughs> I mean, most definitely. Uh, you know, for me, uh, just to add to your other comment, I think there's a, a, a C missing that's critical, right? So conflict creates change, but I think it also creates connection, right? I think that's another piece of that art of storytelling that's really, really, really important. Is like, if you're able to have this conflict creating a change and you're connecting it to people, you've won, right? Look at all the, look at all the great movies of all time, right? It's a conflict that created, like Avatar, right? I just watched Avatar, right? One of the highest grossing movies before like the Marvel came in the world and Marvel's gonna be number one forever. But uh, yeah, and if I was a Marvel superhero, I would be probably, I would probably be, um, damn, I haven't thought about this. I would be, I wouldn't be Captain America. I would be, I would be uh, 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 the, one of the, the Guardians of the Galaxy Ratchet or something. I think <laughs> Rocket, I would, I yeah. Him, he's awesome. Rocket, Rocket, yeah, I would be Rocket. But no, I think that connection aspect of it is hugely important. That's how you, that's how you draw people in, right? You tell them the narrative of the conflict, right? They see it building, you're drawn into it, and then it goes, right? But, it, it, you know, so I think that's an important piece that's missing. But in terms of failure around storytelling, of course. Listen, I have failed in front of our entire North American America's uh, uh, town hall meeting. Completely dropped the ball, right? And what I was trying to do is I was creating that conflict. Like, we were... Uh, I won't, I won't go into names or sales details, but our sales were, were pretty much, you know, we were lackluster coming outside the quarter. I just came over from our EMEA operations and seeing the UK team, they were on point. I mean, they were, these dudes were killers when it came to SDRs, BDRs, AEs, solution consultants. They were, they were executing. British Bulldogs. In this environment. They were, they were killers. I mean, they were, it was, they were hungry, feeding at the mouth, like we need this and we're going to destroy everything. And like, I was, I'm getting, I'm sweating and thinking about it. I was like this, I love this. Right. And I'll never forget Rowan. I came in a entire conversation. Right. And I was trying to create this conflict, trying to create this narrative, trying to tell the story to light fire. And I completely threw our sales team under the bus completely threw them under the bus like in front of everybody Rowan I I'll never forget this moment and afterwards you could tell that it was like Chris just dropped an atomic bomb like I was like I I don't mean I don't mean to say this right but I was like at that moment I knew I fucked up like I was like this is bad I go back to my office I'm getting blown up from all the AEs the sales leaders everybody's like, Chris, like, we know that you have a good heart in this, but what you just did is really, really demoralizing and demotivation to your group of people. Like, we get, like, Chris, we know you have positive intent. We know you were coming from a good place. And I remember having to sit down, and I sat down with the sales leader after that. I sat down with him, and I said, hey, man, first off, I own this mistake. I own it. I, I did not choose my words correctly. I should have not have done that. I own this. This is my mistake. I'm not going to shy away from it. I will own this in the collateral outcome. But one thing I want to partner with you is how can I take that same passion that I want to have? How can I support the team? How can I be in it with it to, to mirror that, right? And I'll never forget, like, our top AEs were like, Chris, I'm, I can, I can re-verbatim the message that I was sent on Slack. He said, Chris, you have a great future ahead of you, but if you ever do that again with the sales team, you will lose all credibility. Like, let, and I I mean, it was major to me, right? And I took that away from it to know, like, okay, Chris, this is what I learned from that. There's times that I need to just sit back and not say anything. And there's times to choose my words and my opportunity to say them to be the most impactful. Rowan, I used to be the person, like right now when you offer, like if I was a participant on the clubhouse, I'd be raising my hand, asking all the questions. I was always that person. I realized in that moment exactly what you just said. Sometimes as an accounting finance FP&A leader or a leader overall, you got to sit back and shut up. And sometimes 
you got to figure out the right moment to say clear, concise, authentic, transparent, and direct thing that you can say to, to, to deliver the most impact. That's what I learned in that moment. And it took me throwing up. I mean, literally, I stood up in front of everybody. Everybody was on Zoom, and I dropped an atomic bomb, and I was just like, oh, man. But I learned from it, and I, I, I took those I took that understanding and it really, really changed my value proposition I'm bringing to those conversations and making it important. But yes, most definitely. I have plenty more stories of throwing up on myself and failing in that regard, but that is definitely the biggest. And, and the tough one about that is uh, from, a, from a leadership perspective, I'm, I'm sure your leader felt bad that, that they'd had kind of put you in a position to do that to yourself as well. Right. I'm sure there was some, some level of like, Oh man, why didn't I talk to Chris about this beforehand? Um, and why didn't we prep together? There's two mistakes that you never want to let uh, a team member coming back to, to the mistakes and the failure and the storytelling. You never want to make, uh, let someone on your team ever make. Number one is a career killing mistake. You never want to have uh, an employee on your team do something that's going to jeopardize their own career that you can control. The second one is you never want to let a team member ever make a company killing mistake, right? Um, that is our job as leaders where we're all, uh, you know, we should let people fail um, because like we've said this whole conversation, we learn from failure. We dissect failure. We understand what happened during that failure and then we get better because of it. You know, whenever you're lifting weights, why do we lift to failure? So that we can get stronger, right? Um, But we never, should never let someone uh, go to failure where they're going to drop the bar on their chest and not be able to get up. Uh, And and it's really important that um, you also never let them make a a company killing mistake because that's that's your job on the line now at some point. And so, you know, it's really important. We we have a joke at at work with some people. We we call it the prep to prep to prep to prep. Like in in some instances, we we over prep for certain meetings because we know how high stakes they are, right? A town hall... Even though it happens every week, you've got the whole company on the line and you can make a dumb right. statement, right? You can make a dumb statement. Definitely. And, and, you know, unfortunately, you made one and you learned from it, right? Like you, you're trying to praise the UK team. You're trying to trying to bring that energy to the, to the, to the uh, America's operation and everyone's like, Chris, you just, nah, man. Um, Destroyed it. Bomb drop. Yeah, and... And you're trying to create the conflict through a story. <laughs> Unfortunately, you create too much conflict. Um. I let my boxing, because I was boxing during that time, and uh, I let, like, I had training that morning, so I was all fueled up and pumped up and ready to go. And that another point, I, I segue in between that. Passion, I've learned. My passion is one of my greatest strengths but it's also one of my biggest weaknesses that I have is because sometimes it, it, it just, it's like a wild flame and it just burns out of control. And I, I've learned and I need to be self-aware that I gotta, I gotta manage that in buckets. And some people may struggle with that. Typically your greatest strength in some capacity is always going to be the biggest weakness that you have, but being self-aware, getting back to the emotional intelligence side of that, like knowing that, okay, I learned from this sales mistake, right? I remember the next town hall meeting where we got up and talked about it. I apologized in front of everybody. I let there in front of everybody. I said, before I start anything, I have no new updates to say. I sat there in front of everybody, the whole company. I owned it. I said, you know, this was my mistake. I should not have done this. This is what I'm going to do to work with the sales team. And this is how we're going to, this is what we're going to do going forward. And everybody, everybody, the leaders and everybody was like, Chris, that was big of you. That was, you know, I didn't, I didn't go with my tail between my legs. I stood up and owned it. And uh, it, but that kind of piece of it helped build our partnership even stronger. Right. It helped like build that, that, that equity and that, that synergy and that, that strong business partnership, the commercial side of our business that was so important. So I think that's the piece of it, right. The connection. And you mentioned on it earlier, Rowan, where you're like, you got to, you can't make the same mistake over you. You're not learning, right? You got to connect the dots, but you can only connect the dots. Steve Jobs said this. 
You can only connect the dots looking back. You can never connect the dots looking forward. That's a topic for another FP&A Fridays uh, is uh, the future of AI and machine learning, I'm sure, in, in finance. And um, we'll see whether we ever get to connecting those dots uh, in future. Um, I'm, I'm sure Steve at some point in his life was trying to do that. Um, the, the one thing that stood out for me, Chris, in what you just said was this, uh, this wonderful word, which is self-awareness. We talked a lot about failure today um, and how you learn from failure. I think the, the key thing uh, to do is to try and figure out and be self-aware of where might you fail? What are your blind spots? Um, you know, uh, again, on the leadership side, the best leaders know their blind spots and hire someone to protect them for that. That's why most entrepreneurial CEOs have a fantastic CFO right? They're trying to guard themselves against, you know, running too fast and tripping over and falling flat on their face. Thanks. They're trying Thanks. to just have that, you know, that kind of little, you know, I don't, I, I'm not a sprinter. I was never built for sprinting, but you see those sprinters and they're running with the parachute on their back. That's the CFO for an entrepreneur, making sure that nobody falls over. Uh, <laughs> just, just holding them back just that little bit, still letting them get strong, still letting them go, but they're just holding them back that I little bit. It. That's a great um, analogy, Roy. I love that. That's a great analogy. And, and so for those people that, um, are, are, you know, they're like, oh, man, I don't want to fail. I've got a fear of failure. We all have a fear, fear of failure. Um, the thing to do is, like, figure out where you're likely to fail, right, um, and find those stress points. So do a SWOT analysis on yourself. What are my strengths? Facts. What are my weaknesses? What are my opportunities? And if you're, if you're really concerned about stuff, who are the threats or what are the threats to me or myself or my career? And regularly check in on that and, and you know, try and create that, um, that structure for yourself where, you know, if you feel like your strengths are super strong, keep working on them. But if you feel like these weaknesses are going to hamper your strengths and hamper your ability to to do your job and be successful and be a leader, go and work on them. Find yourself a, a coach, um, you know, find a mentor, be a good mentee and, and work on those weaknesses. But just identifying them is going to make you better anyway because then you're starting Huge. to look out for them. Huge, definitely. Yeah, so like you said, self-awareness and just – I do that all the time, right? I'm constantly looking at areas where, you know – uh, because anything you're strong at, it obviously was a weakness before that you continue to develop. So doing that self-inventory and being honest with yourself, too, like not, you know, uh, painting this rosy picture of yourself, but really being, you know, self-aware, doing self-inventory. And like you said, finding those ways, whether it's mentors or education or opportunities to like to me, it's like boxing. Right. Like those weaknesses that you have, that's where you go work on those in sparring. Right. You get you great sparring partners. Like for me, when I was boxing, Rowan, one of the weaknesses I always had when I threw my right hand, I wouldn't always bring it back. I would throw it and I would let it down for a little bit. And that leaves my whole right side open. Right. And my coach was like, Chris, you're going to spar with people that have really strong right hands. And every time the biggest way you can learn and if I leave it down, I get clocked in the head with that right hand <laughs> and it talks my right hand up it taught me like if i throw it i gotta keep that right hand up not and i don't mean that in the in that of extreme regard i'm not asking people to punch you to get make you better but again that sparring was not prime time las vegas it wasn't that board meeting it wasn't that you know uh investor call it wasn't that high client you want to go it's a light sparring that you had that prepared you for the pay-per-view showtime battle that you were going to have so find those ways to have those little like sparring exercises to develop your weaknesses right to, to help you get better and saying you know what i'm i'm bad on my right hand i'm bad on my you know my right blocking work on it have that opportunity in that controlled environment with people that are safe that and and work on those things yeah and 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 a real world example there is you know we talked about um you know different kind of types of processes last week on on, on the episode well, if, if you find you have a weakness where you try and rush things, ask someone to double check your work, find yourself a QA, right? And, and just knowing, hey, sometimes I rush and I make mistakes. I need someone to check my work. 
build on a little process and, 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 you know, help someone check that work so before it goes out and you don't have an inaccuracy. I think we've got a question uh, coming in uh, from Kevin. Kevin, uh, welcome to the show. Welcome to FPNA Fridays. Um, would love to, to hear a question, comment, or insight. Yeah, you know, uh, thanks for having me on. I, I just kind of want to touch on some of these things that you guys have been talking about. You know, I messaged Chris earlier this week about, you know, just some of the things around being just a valued FPNA partner and, you know, identifying some weaknesses that, you know, unintentionally for someone that's kind of not in a leadership position that you think is almost a strength where, you know, I was mentioning how, um, you know, it's being someone in a position where other leaders kind of come to you for, for ad hoc work, or they value uh, the work you put in to make decisions, but then ultimately kind of working in startups, you know, it comes with this push and pull of, it detracts you from, you know, building your skills as a, an FPNA person. Um, and so I guess my question is kind of more around you know, I've been in environments where that was just kind of the culture where the analytics um, wasn't great across organizations. So I think it was really kind of leaned on there and you didn't really have that that coverage from your, you know, your higher ups to kind of shield some of this work away. So um, I guess my question would be like, how do you approach someone that's, you know, a CMO or a CRO? Like it, it's a bit hard, right? For an analyst or just a junior manager to say like, hey, it's, it's hard for me to take this on right now. Um, I understand you have things that you need done to push this, you know, push our plan forward, but, you know, yeah, I guess that's kind of, yeah. So kind of what I'm asking here. Yeah, no, 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 that, that, that makes a lot of sense, Kevin. I, I think if I, if I paraphrase, right, as a, as an analyst, you get, um, you get buried by the leadership, right? I need this report. I need that report. I need this report. I need that report. And um, as a leader, we're often unapologetic about that. Um, <laughs> truth. Uh, leaders often do not care. Um, and and what, they, what we don't uh, often understand is all the competing priorities um, that someone has. Um, and actually, you know, the, the thing that I think most strong ICs do in those situations is they say, hey, this report, I've got, I've got so many ideas, right? Start with, I want to help you solve the problem, first and foremost. Um, I just wonder how this impacts all these other things that I have on, right? And let the leader unlock and, and, and prioritize. Now, that is often tough um, uh, where you have multiple leaders asking for something yesterday. <laughs> um, that's always always a problem. And so that's where you need to lean on your manager, your leader to help you reprioritize. So so my my kind of answer in a in a weird roundabout way to that, Kevin, is firstly lead with I want to help you solve the problem because firstly that diffuses the whole situation. It it allows the leader to say, oh Kevin's trying to help me. Um, but I've got a bit of a problem in that there's a bunch of other things that a bunch of other people have asked me for or a bunch of things that you've asked me for, and I'm not sure how to prioritize these things. Um, the other thing that as, a, as someone who manages a, a large team, I often have no idea where our resource gaps are unless people tell me about them, right? Yep. Uh, people often just take on the work and they just like work more hours and it's like, guys, if I knew about that, I would have brought a contractor in or I would have worked with you on a consultant or we could have talked about, you know, knowing that this was coming, we could have had a, a hiring conversation. And so it's that ability to speak up. And I know startups are, are, are a real challenge, especially when, you know, uh, fast growing startups are trying to hire engineers and salespeople. Like GNA is not always the place where, you're going to get that help or support as rapidly, but there might be a solution on a different team. For example, if it's a CMO, they might have their sales ops person do something, or they might have their rev ops person or their marketing ops person help you out or provide you with data that can inform your models and your decision. So that'd be my, my advice and guidance to you. And I'm sure Chris has more. Yeah. And Hey, Kevin, uh, it was great talking with you. Uh, you're uh, a baller. Uh, senior F, uh, FPNA analyst, man, out, out in Seattle. So, yeah, 
Um, I think, you know, Rowan hit it right on the head, prioritization, but I think also as well, right? Like the thing about it is, and I struggle with this sometimes in leadership, I don't, a lot of times I don't know what I actually want. Like, let's be, let's be, <laughs> people look at it, Rowan, you're the same way, right? You don't know, you don't know what you want sometimes. Like I'm, I, I'm thinking about this thing and it's like 10 o'clock at night and I'm finishing my training. I'm just like, I don't know what I want, but well, my team and what I do a great job is I'm transparent about that. Right. And as a leader, like a lot of times they have all these different ideas and you're just like, okay, what I think you're saying is this. Here's the capacity that I have. And I remember us talking about this. Be honest and direct about your capacity. A lot of leaders, and look, I, I live and breathe in a startup, scale-up space and, and high-growth entrepreneur startup companies. So I know exactly the pain point you're going through. And for me, it was always about like, look, this is the capacity that I have. Here's the other things I have to get done. Here's what I can do. I still want to be able to deliver on it, but this is my capacity. Right. And I think being open and honest about that conversation, because the thing about it is the worst thing you can do as a super high performance potential uh, IC uh, senior FP&A analyst is answer every question that they have. That's counterintuitive, because anytime they have a question, you're going to be the guy they just ask a question for. They don't know why they need an answer for the question. They just want to ask the question. But if you're able to say, hey, how does this impact the business or how does this drive your KPIs, right? How does this tie to your quota if it's talking to a salesperson? Helping them bridge you to connect the dots on what they're thinking strategically to what you need to do tactically. You're meeting them on the tactical side. They're coming down to meet. You're meeting them on the strategic. They're coming down to meet you on the strategy. And you meet in the middle and you say, okay, fine. This is what we can do. Here's the timeline and when I can get this done. Here's the capacity. Here's the other priorities that I have, right? And being honest with them about it. That way they know, okay, I know what I know what Kevin's going to deliver. I know what we talked about. And on the time frame, he's going to deliver it. And deliver on those commitments. That's how you build that trust on it. But to me, uh, when I was in those IC roles, I'll never forget I was overloaded because everybody was like, man, Chris is awesome. Like, if you, you know, I worked in a, a central labs location that, you know, we had a team of only six FPNA people, but I was like, it's six of us, but why is everybody asking me all the questions? Like, it's six of us. Like, why is everybody directing things to me? And I quickly realized that all these leaders were like, yo, if you got a business question or a finance question or anything, you need to go to Chris over in the FPNA group. And I, I got all these questions and queries coming in. And for me, those were the steps that I did to really prioritize and also got my team involved with it as well, right? I brought other people in the conversations and dialogues, right? I got them in uh, those those discussions so that way they knew what was going on as well. So and that would be my advice and recommendations to help you, brother. Uh, but keep with it, man. You're, you're doing great, bro. Hey, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Yeah, I think the, the cut through of all of that is just simply communication. <laughs> Uh, just having a dialogue with those people, not being afraid to have a dialogue with those people um, and communicating. You know, here, here's the other challenge that, that um, I always see is we communicate up and down the chain and um, we never communicate across the chain often. Uh, companies just, for some reason, in our stupid culture, uh, we have created this just, command and control up and down the chain military model where in actual fact most of the time Elon Musk has this um uh this modality at Tesla which is just go to the person who has the effing answer um rather than go to that person's boss so that they know about the request so that they can request it down the chain so that it then goes up the chain and then back across the chain and then down the chain to the right person right it's it's like increasingly painful uh as someone who uh, often sees that happening and you're like, man, we just could have solved like three days work of up and down the chain issues if we just went to the person that has the answer. Thanks. Thanks. Ter hey, Terrell, good morning or a good afternoon. Hey. Yeah, good afternoon. Um, I had a question, but I guess can I comment on Kevin's question first? Sure, go for it. Yeah, I remember going through that similar thing, um, especially when I was working in a 
a, tech, a software company that was going through hyper growth and was constantly getting so many questions. And one of the things that I did that really helped out was as people would ask questions or even like my, you know, the, the CEO and the CFO would come to me and ask questions. Um, at first I used to try to do every, you know, answer every bit of it, do the full analysis of what they asked for. And what I started doing was if they asked me for something, I would kind of build out a framework with just a skeleton of what they asked for and then go back to them and say, Hey, is this look like what you were asking for? And what I found a lot of times is the skeleton alone answered all the questions that they had. And I'm like, wow, I, it only took me like 30 minutes to build that skeleton. Now I'm done with it. And I think even for like the, the, the VP of sales used to do that with me a lot where they asked me questions, I build a skeleton and he'd be like, this looks great. Then I was like, well, I can just show the people on your team how to take it to the next level. And then I would hand it off to them. And it really helped, like I said, manage my workload a ton doing it that way. Daryl, that's, um, I think that goes back to what Chris said, which is we don't always know what we're asking for. So just the, <laughs> the skeleton just says, oh yeah, that makes sense. All right, I'm going to carry on with my day. Um, so just It's like, yeah, that's what I needed. That's, that's exactly what I had in my mind. <laughs> uh, I know you had another, another question that you wanted to ask. My question was, I think on the, going back to the, the point of, of failure, I know when Chris talked about the example of what happened with the sales team, I'm curious is that prior to, you know, that, that incident happening, you know, how much time and effort had you been investing in the relationship with the sales team for them to be able to come and have that honest conversation with you afterwards? So you knew that, hey, you know what? Hey, this is how I need to fix it going forward. Yeah, and that's a great question, Terrell. That was years, right? Uh, that was years of in the trenches, equity built up with them, like value-added business partner, uh, right hand to the to the salesperson. So yeah, that's where it was like, they were just, that's why everybody came to me and were like, look, Chris, we know you're coming from a great place, but everybody was sharing from a learning perspective, right? Even the leader, like even to this, sometimes I, I like message him and I'm like, hey, I got a I got a town hall request I'm about to do right now. He's just like, oh, Chris, but don't do this. So that's what I'm saying is like because I built people knew like how I worked with them. They knew my intentions. They just knew I just had a bad delivery. Right. Like everybody has a bad day. You say, you know, nobody bats 100 percent. So to me, it was like you just said that that years of being in the trenches, a solid business partner, supporting them, being uh, an advocate for their business. That was all that history built, right? It wasn't gone away after because I said this one thing. It was a lesson learned, right? And that's why they felt everybody could come to me and be really honest and authentic about it. And I appreciated that, right? And I didn't take it. I think the mistake, if I would have made, if I would have taken and been like, no, well, isn't it true? Like the numbers say it, right? Which is traditionally the county finance side, right? Because the numbers, the numbers are the numbers, right? Numbers we, never lie. The numbers, the numbers never lie. lie. Like, I, and, and you know, really, if 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 you know, playing devil advocate is like, is, is what is what I said? Is it not the truth, or did it just hurt your feelings? Like, which I was like, that's not the way to take it. But I mean, I could have taken it that way because numbers are the numbers, right? Like. Are you just mad that I said that? Are you just, you know, are you you kind of butthurt over it? But for me, it was more about, hey, owning it because that relationship is so important for us in our business, right? Like in North America, SaaS, like that was the growth engine for our entire business. That was the lifeline of how we, you know, achieve so much growth in the U.S. market. So to me, it was that, okay, I'm chopping up as a loss. I'm going to own it. I'm going to get better from it. So yeah, I would not, but I would, if you haven't built that relationship, that makes it now you just alienated yourself, right? Like you kind of, you know, so I would advocate to people, don't make that mistake as you're working to build a relationship with the commercial team. Yeah, I think what you just said there, Chris, is like there, there is the truth in the numbers, right? But you're also at that stage of your business, it sounds like you were at an inflection point. And, you know, inflection points are forks in the road. 
and you could have kicked that whole sales team down one road, which would have meant meant uh, a completely different outcome. And owning up to your, you know, your failure, um, humbling yourself in the next town hall uh, where you own up to that mistake, and and then working with the team in the background gets you to rather than push them down the left hand side of the road, you get to go down to the right hand side of the road, and 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 a different outcome occurs, and. That's also something that I think as leaders we need to realize is there are things that we can do that control the trajectory of the company and some of them are math or model-based or quant-based. Um, they are human feelings, motivations, and you can create momentum in a company with those things. And if you forget that and just focus on the numbers – then that's where you start to create a, a, a the wrong snowball effect. Exactly, exactly. And that's the outcome of failure, right? It's, it's path A or path B. And in any failure, always have that decision. Either you learn or you lose from it. Failure is that, failure is that path A or path B. You either learn from it or you're going to lose and completely change your whole trajectory of life, business, and all those different things. All right. Well, I know it's uh, it's seven minutes. You're on, you're on mute, Ryan. I thought I'd fix that from last week, but uh, here I am. It's seven minutes past the hour. Uh, I know I've got a few uh, a few more minutes to uh, to stay here in the room and and field some questions. Uh, Chris, do you have a couple more minutes to stay here? Rowan, for you, uh, you know what? Uh, <laughs> Thank you. You're not doing it for me. You're doing it for the listeners. If it was anybody else, man, of course. But yeah, of course I have time. I, I love this conversation and I'm looking forward to helping answer any questions. All right. So so for those in the audience, any more questions, just uh, raise your hand, come on up. Uh, and, uh, and if not, we'll probably shut it down and let people get back to their Friday. All right. I'm, I'm going to give it a five, four, three, two, one. All right. Thanks, listeners. We're going to shut it down. Shot clock has gone down. Uh, obviously, Chris nailed the three. Uh, he's doing his little shimmy on the way out the door, Steph Curry style, because that's who the real champ is. And uh, <laughs> we will see you all next Friday. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks, Chris. And, uh, and for those listening on, on the podcast, being planful, this was FPNA Fridays. Come join us here on, uh, on Clubhouse every Friday. Uh, 10 a.m. Eastern, uh, 1 p.m. Pacific. Oh, no. Uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, uh, every Friday on Clubhouse. This is uh, Chris Ortega and Rowan Tonkin. Thanks, all. See you guys. Have a great weekend. Yeah, cheers. Bye.